0: Welcome to the Trifecta edition of Prediction Podcast. Today, we will be going through another three prediction podcasts. And as always, we will be starting out with some recaps of any predictions that need to be updated, because that's how predictions work. There's no absolute prophecy. There is only probability and logic. So all of predictions on Prediction Podcasts, are living ideas. They evolve as events happen through time and adjusting them because it's not about being right. It's about being more right. And that requires caring more about being not wrong than about being absolutely right. So please enjoy this episode of Prediction Podcast Trifecta.
1: So this is my follow-up to the Trump and Kanye prediction from uh, my first prediction on Prediction Podcast, and um, I am just doing an official follow-up. It is Wednesday, February 6th, 2019, so it turns out that I was uh, not absolutely right, one of the variations that I talked about happened um, and I was uh, pretty far from correct in my timing of the variation. Um, I predicted that sometime before Trump left office, uh, he would have a falling out with Kanye. I was blown away to find out that shortly after I published my prediction podcast um, that Trump and Kanye had a falling out. And I wanted to make sure I followed my own heuristic guidelines. And I have waited quite a while to follow up uh, with this prediction podcast for the Trump and Kanye one because, you know, I, I wasn't right about several things. But I was, I feel like I was definitely not wrong um, with the general idea. Uh, Time is a tricky thing for me with probabilities. Most people think in a linear fashion. Um, I've trained my brain to think in a quantum fashion, so uh, it's hard to translate uh, probabilities into a linear timeline when there's so many moving pieces. Um, But essentially, the idea was that sometime before Trump left office, there would be a very public uh, breakup between Trump and Kanye that pitted them um, against each other. On the other hand, I predicted that also there is a chance that he would anoint him and that they would stay friends. But I was uh, more leaning towards the idea that there would be a breakup. That's why I focused so long on those details, because even though I knew that there was a chance that they could, you know, stay friends, I didn't really believe that they could stay friends, and that's why I pivoted pretty early on in that prediction to emphasize the fact that there would be a breakup, and that in conflict marketing, when somebody is being anointed, um, it's, they're anointed through conflict the same way that you know Taylor Swift and Katy Perry like they anointed each other through conflict marketing by becoming frenemies Kanye West and Taylor Swift anointed each other by becoming frenemies and Trump and Kanye anointed each other by becoming frenemies it's just a matter of who wrongs who if that makes sense the person who's wronging the other person is the one who anoints the conflict, if that makes sense. That's how conflict marketing works. So um, it turns out that, you know, that was, that was the prediction that I was most worried about because these things, they can vary in ways that are very, very unpredictable. Um, hence, you know, me leaving it open to the fallout, the fallout happening sometime before Trump left office, I had no idea that it would happen that quickly. But, you know, when the writing's on the wall, it doesn't always have an expiration date. So um, if I'm going to update that prediction podcast, it's um, look out for Kanye 2020. So this is a follow up to the Ethereum prediction podcast episode, and I don't feel like I could have been more wrong on that prediction. Um, I'm going to be honest, I have not been very good historically predicting Ethereum. Um, It seemed like 2017 was my year with uh, understanding the crypto markets, and then, you know, After January of 2018, it's just my like, I was so out of sync with the markets, and I'll be honest, it took a huge pride hit on me. Um, and I was so determined to get the last prediction right, um, of the year for me with Ethereum. And I wanted to uh, prove my disbelief wrong about Ethereum going back to my sentiment on it in 2000... uh, ...2015. So, 2015 was a weird year for me with Ethereum. I think it was 2015. Whichever was the first year that Ethereum came out, I think it was sometime between 2013 and 2015. I'm not very good with uh, linear timeframes, like I've said in some of my other podcasts. Um, But when Ethereum first came out, I remember being really, really impressed by the tech and the idea of smart contracts, as opposed to what I call, you know, a binary contract system of a blockchain and this, you know, smart type of blockchain was just really, really seemed profound to me. And by the time I found it, it was sometime between like 8 and $0.16. Cents. I think it was close to like $0.12 cents when I was thinking about getting into Ethereum. So if you have ever felt like you got into crypto late, at least you didn't have an opportunity to plop down however much money you wanted to when Ethereum was, you know, pennies. Um, And you will never have a good reason, a good enough reason, let me say. You will never have a good enough reason to choose to invest or to not to invest. Because here is my humiliating story. This was when, you know, the creator of Ethereum was still on Google Hangouts, and I sent him a message and got no response. Um, I wasn't understanding the hype that was going on behind the scenes with crypto at that time. Um, I didn't realize that, you know, if I had heard about Ethereum um, And I didn't even hear about Ethereum from Coindust. I heard about it on other outlets, which was really big back then. And I didn't put two and two together to realize that, you know, he probably wasn't going to respond to a random message on Google Hangouts. Um, But nonetheless, you know, my pride and ego back before I started studying emotional intelligence got the better of me and I decided not to invest in Ethereum because I felt wronged. Now I tend not to listen to my feelings and beliefs. I I tend to question those the most now that I know how to differentiate between uh, thoughts and feelings and thoughts and beliefs and, you know, ideas and feelings and beliefs and stick to thoughts and ideas. And this is You know, one of those things that comes full circle. I was wrong about Ethereum not to invest in it. And I was wrong to, uh, you know, close out my latest prediction on Ethereum. And um, it's time to let go of trying to be right about, you know, crypto that pulled strings on my ego for so long. And now, you know, I'm... I'm focusing more on fundamentals than ever. 2016, 2017 were my years for um, switching from fundamentals to technical analysis, learning that and realizing it seemed like a crystal ball when I combined it with fundamentals. And then 2018, I did fundamentals less and less Um, in relativity. I actually just didn't do more fundamentals, even though there are more fundamentals to do than ever now with crypto. Um, It's just more tedious than it's ever become. So I didn't up the ante to go deeper with fundamentals and spend more time on it. So, you know, in contrast, my fundamental analysis wane. So... Um, I take full responsibility for that, um, and, you know, this is not an investment advice podcast or outlet. I, I do not give investment advice. Um, I'm just looking to give insight that people, you know, can use for entertainment or educational purposes, however they want, um, and when it comes down to it, I've I've reengaged in rediscovering how to do fundamentals um, with a market saturation of information and misinformation with crypto, like we've never seen before. Um, and I've had a lot of fun. I, I I've been going hands on into chat rooms and you know Discord, Telegram, you know Gitter, all of these things doing fundamentals. I think the one of the um one of the cryptos that i mentioned in the ethereum prediction podcast was library and i started there and i started being more active in their community um really really getting to know the fundamentals of the team and um you know these are open source communities so it's it's not that you have to go to the company and it's it's all public facing because they they open source their help as well so I have done more fundamentals on library. I am more long on that than ever. They have a really sound short and long-term strategy. Uh, They seem to really understand their uh, market fit. They seem to be open to competition, uh, even with their own protocol in ways that is really, you know, in alignment with, uh, Nakamoto uh, open source philosophy with cryptography. I I love it. I'm more long than ever with them. Um, I've looked into radical exchange. This is something that the founder of Ethereum teamed up um, with an American on this. And it is a very, very exciting project. I think that they are 90% to having something super solid from what I've Researched and I am very very excited to see where they take this. Um, I've also dug deep into fundamentals um, with Gun and Ax. The Era team is putting together layers and layers of protocols to do real decentralized web. It reminds me so much of Hypernet from Silicon Valley from HBO, one of my favorite shows. It is a truly decentralized web platform and it makes so much sense. It's, they're going full circle back to the early days of the internet with JavaScript and redefining how to use JavaScript to combine with Node.js to do web apps and things. Like you know, it's just very, very exciting stuff that they're working on and they've teamed up with uh Marty Malmy, uh Marty Sirius Malmy from uh uh one of the original Bitcoin foundation uh, guys. He uh, really, really sharp guy created a crypto called identity or identify. I forget exactly, but that's baked into uh, decentralized servers with gun. And uh, well, needless to say, like, I'm very excited with a lot of the fundamentals of different platforms I'm looking into um, some other new ones that I've been researching more recently that I'm very excited about um, are the WOM protocol. That one is an open source uh, influencer uh, protocol where they have a very, very fascinating and very refreshing um, approach to content curation that, it, you know, marketing and ethical marketing as a whole is in desperate need of to combat this ad. Uh, this ad delusion, I would call it as a, a marketer, this you know obsession with ads in a society that is resisting ads in a way that does not condone our addiction to it anymore as marketers. Um, I am also very, very interested in the fundamentals of singularity that this is a very, very exciting pro- approach to um, one side of decentralizing artificial intelligence to make it an even more open source marketplace not just for developers but for users in ways that we desperately desperately need to um, combat the hyper centralization of AI that's going on right now with IBM and Google trying to create the mainframes of AI and right now like oh man like singularity net is really really exciting because that reminds me of you know how you would have the you know computer the old-fashioned computer shops and 70s and 80s and um, you know the computer clubs and it is something we desperately need to bring us to the point where we can have truly decentralized AIs or maybe even an AI API to help, you know, human-to-human communication, human-to-human connection in this world. Um, But, you know, baby steps, one thing at a time. I'm, you know, I'm not as long on Ethereum as I used to be now with the founder leaving. Um, I do believe the idea is essential. We do need distributed computing Uh, There are so many ways this can happen, though. I mean, I'm very, very interested in Gunn's approach to decentralized computing. I still think there might be a place for decentralized processing, um, but most people use computers for the sake of the Internet, um, and web apps are becoming more and more popular. I think that decentralized Internet browsing is going to be a huge competition for, decentralized computing, like Ethereum models, does this mean that we won't, that we'll have to choose one? No, like that's not how decentralized works in my mind. I truly believe that, you know, if we can have, you know, even decentralized internet become just as good as everything we know how to use computers for, that will augment our, utilization of decentralized processing such as you know ethereum type models i think we will continue to innovate on every single aspect and realize that we will have you know an exponential curve in how we think of computing um, not in a linear progression but in a quantum progression and that will be revolutionary to say the least um, i think in both cognitive intelligence power and emotional intelligence power. I think that's an inevitable rise once computing and innovation in in computing gets more and more accessible to creatives who are not analytical enough to help the creation of tools. But once we get, you know, what Steve Jobs did for uh, computing tools to the creation of computing tools, which right now is pretty much behind that wall of engineering, over and bridge that gap to creatives. I think that's when we will see this exponential curve of innovation like the world has never seen before. And I think that will spark a fourth industrial revolution, which marries decentralization, artificial intelligence quantum computing on the hardware level and the human level, which gets very, very overlooked. And this will have a revolution of what I will call emotional computing. And that is very, very important because right now it seems like the engineers talk about putting computers inside of humans when really we need to bridge the gap between humans and computers. And instead of them trying to define us, we use them to help us define us. And that doesn't really come from access to answers. That comes from asking better questions. And uh, I think that is how I am going to uh pivot my prediction on Ethereum in the future is, you know, I've educated myself a whole lot more asking why I was wrong. And I have been led to a lot of uh, very um big realizations with the future of crypto. I realized that I was focused too much on uh the monetary side of things, the currency side of things. And not enough on the human resource side of things. And the open source communities are booming in a way that the markets aren't representing. And I think that they're doubling down to move forward in the future. Because, well, you know, in the first worlds we see Bitcoin has dropped, you know, drastically from, you know, some remember 20,000 now down to close to three and I was not expecting this but when it comes down to it um, you know it's worth a lot more in other parts of the world so there is a lot of labor flooding in to help these open source communities in ways that the markets aren't representing and I think that it is a smarter time than ever um, to consider um an investment in cryptocurrencies. Um, if you want to explore fundamentals of cryptocurrencies, uh, reach out to me. I can give you um give you contact of uh, my favorite investor, really, really sharp guy, um, knows what he's doing and understands this game like nobody's business from both a fundamental and a technical analysis side. And you know, a mad respect for uh, the way he sees the, the markets in the micro and the macro. Um but uh yeah, I I was definitely wrong with uh with my Ethereum prediction and you know uh I'll call him bot dev because that's his Twitter handle, he's the uh hedge fund investor that I mentioned just a second ago. Uh, he was absolutely more right than me um, when I first shared that prediction on Ethereum. And, you know, it's it's all a learning process. And um, I thank the people who put up with my crazy predictions trying to push the boundaries of what's next and keep an open mind. Um, and well, I don't really care about being right, I... I'm very concerned with being not wrong, and I, um, I encourage others to explore this philosophy of analysis. Um, I think not wrong is one of the forgotten, you know, legs to the table of right, wrong, not right, and not wrong, and it's it's very important because it's not an absolutist way of looking at things, and it helps to keep an open mind and use skepticism um, in a very healthy way, I found. So, all right, well, thank you for listening to this, and thank you for bearing with my wrong prediction. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't follow this up with something more uh, more concrete, but I'm still re-educating myself on what's next, as I encourage everyone to be doing all the time. Um, and, you know, If you need to use me as a crutch to explore what next, uh, please continue to do so. And I thank you for listening to this follow-up of my Ethereum prediction.
0: So today is Thursday, February 7th, 2019. And I am going to talk about Facebook in episode number four of Prediction Podcast. So, depending who you ask, I am a marketer. Um, I love marketing for what it is to communicate good ideas to people. Um, But if you've heard any of my other podcasts, you're also aware that I am very aware of how it can be used to promote bad ideas for people. Um, this ethics dilemma in marketing is, you know, not unknown to many marketers. Um, as, as many people might be aware, there is no code of ethics for marketers. There's, you know, no ethical guideline other than what is or isn't illegal and as you know as we've experienced or anyone who knows history well enough that's not always um <laughs> that's never actually that's never been a good enough uh moral system for you know a powerful tool um this is this is why um, marketing is in such a a state where about 80% of what marketers do is unknown, I'd say. I mean, a lot of people are familiar with growth marketing, um, that rise through the tech era. And, you know, pretty much everyone is familiar with Bernaysian marketing, even if they don't know what Bernaysian marketing is. Uh, Edward Bernays is the father of... Uh, you know, PR, advertising, as well as propaganda, which is, you know, the um, rebranding of PR. It was propaganda at one point, but, uh, you know, apparently there is such a thing as bad PR, and the Nazis were it for propaganda, so Edward Bernays changed it to PR to lead his advertising and marketing network, um, about a hundred years ago. Um, anyways, without going too far into that, let's, let's delve into, you know, not who I am, but what this prediction is for Facebook. Um, now as a marketer, I respect other marketers like Seth Godin and Gary Vee, Gary V. especially, um, I love what he's doing to decentralize um, the idea of self awareness and raise awareness for self awareness and emotional intelligence. Um, and as much as I respect him, as much as he's influenced me, this podcast is going to be kind of contrary to. Uh, it's it's going to be pretty contrary to Gary V's main core message. Uh, to young entrepreneurs, young business owners, as this podcast is aimed directly at users of social media that aren't in it for the marketing. And that only makes up, you know, a couple billion of their users. So I know that this audience is fairly small, but, uh, you know, it could be worse. I, I could be using sarcasm and not change my tone of voice so um let's let's go into what facebook is facebook is an app company facebook is an advertising platform facebook is still a very lucrative advertising platform for both app makers and marketers alike um I will not disagree with Gary Vee on that, that there is still a lot of money that can be made marketing on Facebook. In the macro, though, uh, this does not distract from the fact that Facebook is dying. Um, and this is something that's very interesting about technology, is technology doesn't die completely. I mean... MySpace is dead, but it was still relevant long past people f- forgetting about it and long past Gen Z thinking that it's some sort of historical reference. Um, technology doesn't die the same way that old industry did. Um, technology just doesn't become, it's no longer top dog. That's how technology dies. Uh, Facebook is an interesting beast because in this rise of decentralization in the internet, I mean the internet started out pretty close to decentralized, Um, it was just more distributed than it was centralized Uh, and now it's gotten more and more centralized, more centralized than it is distributed. Um, and now it's getting more and more decentralized and even Facebook as an app company, which, you know, even Gary V talks about all the time. That's what Facebook is. It's an app company. And when Facebook dies, it's going to go through a rebirth. And this rebirth is going to focus on niche apps that it really crushes because it's shown that it would rather stomp out competition than curate, uh, good ideas like you know amazon does and you know that is what it is that's their model i'm not going to throw shade or sentiment at that one way or another i'm not saying that it's positive or negative i'm looking at this from a neutral light and i believe that facebook as we know it will fail right now a huge majority of facebook's uh, user base uses facebook on its main platform for the express purpose of Facebook groups, there's a huge future in facebook groups i've seen a lot of other Facebook group competition start up um, stand alone Facebook group apps. Some of them charge a great amount of money because they're aimed at you know the big brands, which I think is really smart. I think it's really smart for there to be a premium brand for you know marketers and brands alike. Um, And that's what, you know, utilities like Disciple out of the UK is doing. This isn't to say that there isn't a huge opportunity for people to go in and create, you know, an equivalent to Facebook groups. I think right now one of the most underappreciated features of Facebook groups is the social learning platform. This is, you know, an easy access Udemy course they can be marketed way easier than a traditional Udemy course. If you change up the you know the monetization model from pay upfront for education to you know people provide value for value, you know the thank you economy model. This is a huge untapped opportunity for you know Facebook marketers and Facebook users and entrepreneurs alike. Um, I think that Facebook as we know it. Will become uh, Facebook groups. I think Facebook Messenger um, will find its place in a one on one, a replacement for phone numbers. I think it will, um, you know, be a great way to have group chats like, you know, FaceTime is doing with group video chats. All of these things are right around the corner. People are understanding the need to have their own, you know, inner circle. More and more, and this is why Facebook groups are rising. This is why, you know, group chats are going to be rising. Um, I think that Facebook, as we know it, will just be the brand name of curation of apps. Um, We won't really have things like the wall and the profile and pages be the main stages anymore of facebook and this is what people want they don't want their facebook feed filled with all the pages that they regret following they want to go right to a group you know even if you know group owners have a url that they point right to their group just that's what people want again is that small niche community that isn't you know bombarding them with you know sponsored posts all the time and this is the way things are going, regardless of what we may want as marketers. And this is something that I think we need to be aware of, is what the users want. Users want, you know, the niche things like Facebook Marketplace, you know, Messenger, Facebook groups. They don't care as much about their feed or the sponsored posts and, you know, that algorithm of showing them what they should want, the engineered wants. They don't really care about that anymore. Um, they don't really care about pages anymore. And this is something that, you know, marketers, I know we try and deny this because that's a huge moneymaker, but they're becoming less and less effective. Um, and what's interesting is there's a lot of opportunity in organic growth as, you know, a marketing strategy now with the way that the algorithms have. Changed. I think there's a huge opportunity for marketers to give away what they know um, and do like micro consulting for their brand where they just do a niche course for somebody in this niche or somebody in this niche so that people know how to market their brand and educate entrepreneurs on how to be a marketer of their own brand, not be a marketer as a, you know, a trade but to figure out how to decentralize the marketing industry, these will be the people that are on top on the flip side when, you know, the economy flips. Like even Gary V talks about that, you know, you won't be a marketer left holding the bag, realizing that like what what value is it that I spent on, you know, these marketing courses now that everyone's just marketing their own brand. And this is what you're going to have to figure out for yourself. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity in, you know, still marketing with Facebook and figuring out what's next for you and your brand and helping other personal brands. And, uh, there's a lot of hope for Facebook users because the things that they hate about Facebook, the things that are pulling people away from Facebook, Facebook is going to figure out a way to pivot, um, And what's interesting is this will open up a whole new playing field. Social media will be redefined from, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Reddit as a community as a whole. We're finding the import of, you know, niche communities, finding our people and even curating our own groups of people. Uh, And this is really, really important because... um, facebook is doing whatever they can to stay relevant and right now like they they are a major you know global nation state that doesn't care about borders that doesn't care about geographic land control um they care about control of people's attention and um this is something that even state governments understand you know Entire country governments understand. This is why, you know, they can have a huge stock price scare and scandal and then go to a congressional hearing. But in the year to year, you know, there's not a single dip in their dividend returns. Um, It all seems like a Bernaysian marketing tactic to just boost their brand awareness um, while also giving the masses an explanation for why they've become more tyrannical with censorship, for um, you know, for the most part, and in ways that are spoken and unspoken, things that are just n- not even known yet, unless you're on the groundworks of journalism and being involved as a, you know a journalist and using Facebook as a platform to distribute, you know, your updates, uh, it's it's really, really tough. I know many, many podcasters that are getting eaten alive um, with the Facebook algorithm through censorship that are talking about, you know, all sorts of subjects. And this is something that I think is going to kill Facebook's most known platform, which is The feed pages and profiles, and those will eventually have, you know, their own independent apps. I think there will be competition for these things in ways that will redefine the social media playing field. Um, uh, So, all in all, I'm pretty bearish on Facebook in the future. I'm very long on competition for social media i see a huge need for social media uh, just as much as i see that there's a huge need in the marketplace for niche communities um, and that's very very important i see that there's a huge demand for free education and i think you know any marketer can figure out a way to provide value for value in the thank you economy you know Gary V talks about this a lot. If you watch Gary V's videos, read his books. They're even better. Like, you know, Jab, 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 Right Hook or Left Hook. Uh, that's a great one combined with Thank You Economy. If you want to figure out what next. If you're not able to crush it doing Facebook ads, why don't you read those books? This is very, very important to not only understand how to get your own audience now or get audiences for others but also to push forward and uh, this this sounds like it's you know more for marketers than I said in the beginning but let me be very clear with users of Facebook that don't believe that they're marketers you are a marketer Your Facebook profile is a personal brand. If you want friends, that's marketing. Facebook is going to become less and less of a traditional advertising platform and more and more angled towards genuine connection. What you, as not a marketer, really want from social media. You don't want to know what page to follow Or, you know, what sponsored ad to watch. You want to know what's going on with real people that you really care about, that you really know. And this is important to you. And when it comes down to you being able to speak who you are and, you know, find your people, that is brand marketing. It's just, you know the marketer's term for what is traditionally called reputation. So, when I talk about marketing in this, you know, in this prediction, I've talked about two different types of marketing, the, you know, the traditional marketing strategies for marketers and, you know, the traditional reputation strategies for users. I'm sorry I didn't make that more clear, but uh I'm very very long on the future of users in social media um, even with facebook being irrelevant in the future just not the dominant you know king on the hill anymore and i think that will be a bright future for both facebook and the future of social media um, and options for users for their own communities and their own niches and i think that this is a really really great thing um, I like Facebook, despite being bearish on it. Um, I still use Facebook as a user and um, a marketer as my primary platform, despite being bearish on it. Um, this is the difference between what I want and what I need as a user and a marketer. And I encourage others to... You know be aware that your wants and needs may not be aligned and don't let that cloud your judgment it's it's tough it's it's tough and i suggest you know exploring emotional intelligence and self-awareness even like gary v says i know a lot of people that don't like gary v but there are a lot of people that talk about self-awareness and emotional intelligence and the import of these things um in the rise of the computing age to keep humans relevant to each other and machines um so yeah uh thank you for listening to episode number four of prediction podcast while i go over uh my prediction for facebook um, why i'm bearish and why i'm bullish on uh, the future of social media and the future of community thank you So this is episode number five of Prediction Podcast and it is Thursday, February 7th and I will be going over my prediction for Hollywood in that sector of industry as a whole. Um, There are a lot of people right now talking about what Hollywood does right and what Hollywood does wrong. Um... There are a lot of misconceptions in my years researching, studying, and uh, consulting for the entertainment sector, um, both Hollywood and outside Hollywood alike, uh, publication, um, news, um, and uh, the music industries. I have become painfully aware of uh the fact that hollywood is connected to every form of entertainment even news and non-fiction and education in ways that um we really um would be disgusted by as you know an american people or people of the world if we couldn't be distracted by all the great stuff that they entertain us with and um this is something that really tore at me as you know, a consultant in these industries. Um, and it showed me some you know dark stuff. Um, but now more than ever, I am hopeful in the future. I'm not an absolutist. I don't believe that, The answer is to get rid of Hollywood completely, to get rid of entertainment, to get rid of what we know and love, but to find a way for an ethical evolution of everything we know, um, of both what we love and what we hate, and be able to say we can do better. This is why, you know, I've gone from being very pro, you know, the Hollywood industry to very anti. Hollywood industry and I'm aware that anti-movements don't get anywhere and that's why I tried to find an ethical middle ground and this is where I came into my prediction with Hollywood and I would like to start with a story about Nintendo and Sega. Um, This is for the video game nerds out there but it's more of a history lesson um, of how the unexpected and the impossible uh, can be made possible and is You know, still this way um, in our very recent history. So back in the 90s, there were many, many competitions for uh, the video game industry. I mean, there was, you know, obviously Nintendo and Atari and Sega and, you know, Commodore and Sony and Panasonic and just even Apple was in the video game race back then. Um, but by the late nineties, um, undoubtedly there was the top three and everything else was pretty much irrelevant. And there was Nintendo, the King on the Hill, there was Sega, you know, the, the rival, the big rival, it was, you know, the war of the systems. Um, and then there was this new kid on the block, Sony, that, uh, people who could see the future of what video games could offer or devout Sony fanboys for good reason. But back then, through the late 90s, Sony was, you know, a rising star that people weren't sure if they were going to last for also good reason. Um, It was pretty obvious to people in the late 90s that, Sega and Sony would continue to battle for the top 2 spots for the kingdomship of the video game community. Um everyone knew Nintendo had been around longer, but Sega was great at content. They were really really great. They were, you know, even better in some people's eyes with uh games that were based on strategy and you know, story. And this is something that was becoming more and more important and what was feeding into Sony at the time was the need for story. And then uh, the unthinkable happened. Sega came out with, you know, a competition to what Sony um, was coming out with, a disc-based system. Um, And it was wildly popular. And they didn't even have a uh, copyright protection method for their system. So people could even burn the discs and, you know, play things that way. But what's interesting is is um, that despite this popularity, despite this user base growing rapidly, um, they died. Uh, they died because they ran out of money. And it wasn't because, you know, their games were being pirated. This is something that was pushed pretty heavily with, you know, Hollywood propaganda at the time with intellectual property laws that uh, intellectual property theft kills creativity. But no, it was just, you know, they ran out of money, plain and simple. Um, and they were playing a quarterly game. When they needed to be playing a yearly game to survive this huge investment in a new type of technology. Um, And they collapsed. And they were reborn as a software company. And now they make software for Nintendo. And this is unimaginable to anyone in the late 90s. No one could have ever imagined that Sega would stop making hardware and be making software for even Nintendo's hardware. No one would have imagined this. If you would have predicted this back then, people would have said that it was, you know, completely ludicrous, uh, completely insane, um, going against all reason. um, Because, you know, sometimes the unthinkable happens. Sometimes the impossible happens because of something nobody sees coming um and you know like i mentioned let's let's go into the intellectual property side of things what is intellectual property um i know as a creative as a content creator and a creative i was raised through the 90s and early 2000s um not by what my parents taught me or by you know what people knew but by what i learned by popping in a vhs or you know, watching a commercial on you know the Disney Channel um, that reminded me that uh, copyright infringement is akin to theft and stealing. You wouldn't steal a car, you know. You wouldn't you know steal a bike. You wouldn't steal a movie. And what's interesting is these were very powerful for a very long time. I knew in my heart of hearts that copyright theft was theft. And then I started, you know, learning more. I started getting experience. I started consulting in the industries of the creative industries. And I started to realize they were anti-internet. Because the internet in the 90s was seen as a fad. They weren't sure if it was going to survive or not. And Hollywood had made billions of dollars over almost a century. Making money off of what the internet could do for free. What does this mean? This means that distribution was something that was left to old industry like Hollywood to make copies and get it out to people and get it distributed to people that was their business model for a hundred years and then the internet comes around and any nerd you know with a computer could do exactly what they had spent billions on infrastructure for they could share movies with they figured out how to get you know a digital copy off of the digital copies that they had you know, kind of resisted with DVDs and CDs and they figured out how to distribute it without them. This is why we were pitched these, you know, ads for, you know, to be anti-internet sharing, not because it's unethical, not because it's actually stealing, but because it's competition to their business model that they didn't want to think of a way to compete with. Eventually, somebody did think of a way to compete with, you know, the internet, but it wasn't Hollywood. It was Netflix. And it was Hulu. And now they are directly competing with Hollywood. Hollywood thought that they, you know, lucked out that people, okay, now that they don't want to share things on the internet, you know, we're good. We don't have to worry about the internet. And then Netflix and Hulu comes around, and now, you know, Hollywood is seeing that they can't fight this technical revolution, and they're trying to find a way to get in on this, and they've started to, you know, pull out of their deals with Netflix and Hulu, especially Disney, who's wanting to make their own Netflix and Hulu, so you have another subscription to pay. You know, it used to be that cable cutting was uh, more cost-effective than you know, the cable companies and now it's turning out people are paying just as much, if not more on streaming services, paid streaming services than they ever were on, you know, cable companies. And we, we're we kind of okay with this because, you know, they provide good content, but we're also aware that it's becoming less and less and less. And the content that we care most about um is living you know shorter and shorter lifespans they're getting canceled quicker and quicker and this is very frustrating it feels more and more like we can't be fans we have to be consumers and just be good with it there's no room for art there's only room for what can make money and we're aware of this in our heart of hearts we're aware that you know Hollywood is waning And the answer isn't that, you know, they should all go away and give up their copyrights completely and, you know, piracy should take over regardless if you think piracy is actually theft or just a very clever rebranding campaign for internet sharing. Um, And this is killing creativity in ways where, you know, copyrights, let's look at this logically, copyrights are not the rights of creatives. Copyrights are absolutely the rights of the distributors, the copy makers, the marketers. Copyrights do not protect creatives. If you're a creative looking for a break, copyrights don't protect you. They hurt you. And this is something we can see even with skyrocket successes like The Weeknd who... Gives away their music for free. Like this is breaking trends on what it is to have copyright. And this is happening in many different ways. Neil Gaiman talks about how, you know, he loves it when people pirate his stuff because he gets actual fans. And the marketers have trained creatives to think of customers first and fans as thieves. And this is you know, fine, if the internet didn't exist, if social media didn't become the thing that made the internet what it is, and sharing isn't, you know, what it is now, but it is, and we're realizing that there's a contradiction, what we've been told is, you know, morally, legally, and ethically right, and what actually is, and realize that, you know, Maybe we were duped as consumers. I had to address maybe I was duped in the 90s to believe something that, you know, isn't actually true, but benefits people that I wasn't aware. And that, you know, the people who were backing those public service announcement campaigns for piracy... Were the people who were directly threatened by the internet and saw no future in the internet and wanted people to not use the internet and wanted people to, it's, you know, obviously they made a bet and we're the ones paying the price. And I suggest we reevaluate things. This is not to say that I am anti big production. People, a lot of people think that, you know, without Hollywood, how will we have the things that we love? Well... Indie production has become easier than ever. Technology is abundant. People can make an entire movie, an entire documentary um, from their laptop. They can make an entire album from their laptop. They can, you know, write and publish and distribute a book from their laptop. Most of the time, they can even do it from their phone now, too. The tools have become so commonplace that, you know, there are only a few things left That you need a production studio or that you need, you know, a label studio or you need, you know, something more. And this is where that, you know, saving grace is for the Hollywood industry. I think that the solution to Hollywood's problems right now will push them down a path where they will figure out how to open source their assets and Hollywood has many different assets. They have cameras, they have sets, they have, you know, relationships with, you know, actors and, you know, with uh, directors and they have, you know, all sorts of resources, including, you know, creative assets. They have copyrights. I think that we will soon see a peer to peer distribution network for like an uber of hollywood where indie creators can you know put in bids for their creative projects and be matched up with whoever they can pitch to and and you know also figure out like a new funding model to fund projects individually with minimal retainer like troughs of investment that is just enough to get like these are the sort of things that we can push forward where you can have you know an uber-like algorithm for hollywood where all it does is account whether or not it's worth investing and they can get what they need done in cheaper ways than ever if You know, they don't have to sign a deal with a studio. They can just rent cameras, whether or not they get, you know, an investment from here and then spend that with, you know, Sony's cameras or, you know, and rent those that they otherwise couldn't afford, like an IMAX camera. If they want to get a set here and a set here and a set here and they're all with different studios, we can see a new creative renaissance where Hollywood is the uber of you know this matchmaking system um thing is is hollywood better get on it because you know this is the only way to make brands survive i could see you know sony and mgm and disney be a great you know way to start this with the uber for creatives where it's not about owning the creative rights it's about you know figuring out a way to remonetize assets in a collapsing centralized monetary system where you know the there is no threat of you know the me too movement if there is no centralized control of production and people can produce bigger things as independent entities and make long term use of these assets rather than going bankrupt and all the assets being sold for pennies on on the dollar and things you know maybe Disney buying up more and more and more of you know the failing movie companies. Um, this is how things will be distributed in the future. This is what people want. It breaks the old systems, but it's a way for you know innovative brands to monetize their assets. I mean, Disney has some of the most important assets for animation production, and animation is becoming a huge thing in environments like YouTube and the need for, you know, to get more people educated. I think documentaries, animated documentaries, are a huge trend, and Disney has some of the best assets when it comes to animation with their you know, in-house production and Pixar alike. These are the things where it's like even Pixar, Pixar alone could start this trend and create an app and distribute their, you know, their assets in ways that, you know, fan films could be a thing and everybody gets a cut and, you know, the fan films creators aren't going to be known as if somebody created a fan film of Toy Story, even with the assets No one's going to believe that they created Toy Story. We live in an information age. If you know every single fan film that is, you know, quote unquote breaking copyright, you know, law, is, you know, copyright infringement, a copyright sin. If that's pointing back to the original source, that's free marketing. And this is the evolution of, of, you know, how things work. I mean, it happened in video games, it's happened in the music industry and it's still shifting in the music industry. And this is, you know, Hollywood's chance to show their dominance in a different way. I mean, this caught the video game industry off guard. This hit the music industry, you know, off guard. It doesn't have to be the same way for Hollywood. Hollywood can pivot there's no reason that, you know, pivoting is limited to tech companies. Even old industry can pivot. It just means going all or nothing Vanderbilt style and going all in on the future. And I predict it will be either Disney or Pixar breaking off from Disney or, you know, you know, you know, maybe Sony or paramount that will be one of the first ones to go all in on this on this uh and we will see an evolution of how hollywood became a tech industry and i think that that is essential for the rise in creative innovation in entertainment i think it's you know essential for an ethical evolution in news um And um, I think that, you know, it will be up to Hollywood to figure out how to decentralize, you know, Hollywood-type accounting, Hollywood-type legal systems. Um, And I think that will be really, really cool to see. Um, I think it's inevitable, especially with platforms like Library um, and, you know, what C and axe and gun over at ERA are, are these amazing protocols for a decentralized internet combined with things like, you know, library protocol. This is this is the future. And I think, you know, Hollywood would be hard pressed to find a logical reason not to invest in this. And it's not a matter if they all do. It's a matter of which one will be first. Today is Thursday, February 7th, 2019. And this is my prediction podcast number six. And this topic is mental health. So let's talk about the history of mental health for a second. Um, There was a mental health revolution in the 1880s involving a very strong woman named Nellie Bly. And this was during the very, very, very beginning of the suffrage movement in America. It was gaining traction in the UK and still decades away from you know, being, you know, what I would consider the height of first wave feminism um, that got the right to vote and led into second wave feminism, which took off in the 1960s and 70s. But there was a very, very beginning of the suffrage movement. And this was in the late 1800s. And the untold side of the beginning of, you know, feminism and civil rights and, you know, this was at the very, very beginning. I mean, nobody was really even fighting, you know, for civil rights on the racial issues in the 1880s. I mean, slavery had just been abolished. And, you know, racial issues weren't even a major talking point yet. And what's interesting is, is the first human rights movement didn't have anything to do with women, didn't have anything to do with race. It had everything to do with crazy. Let's talk about this word crazy. Crazy is a pretty taboo word. With my history in the mental health industry and as, you know, a mental health consumer, um... Crazy has been a very taboo word in my world, Um, as it is for most people. Crazy is that word you don't say and that word you're ashamed that you think. Um, It's that word that you never associate with mental illness, but you're okay associating it with anything that's not mentally ill. I find that the word crazy is kind of the word that connects us all, you know, there's the crazy middle class person, there's the crazy white person, there's the crazy white girl, there's the crazy Asian person, there's the crazy black dude, there's the crazy black woman, there's the crazy, you know, there's a crazy everything. And I find that no matter what the minority is, crazy is that subclass of If we can make your subclass worse, all we have to do is tack on the word crazy. And this is something we should be acutely aware of. What does this mean? How has this occurred in history? Well, in the 1800s, crazy was the word that they used for mentally ill. There wasn't, mentally ill was the scientific word. Now it's the politically correct word. But back then, it was the scientific word. Now we just call somebody mentally ill without caring about the scientific definition of it, which means that today, using mentally ill plays the same role as calling somebody crazy back then. And it doesn't excuse that we found a new way to use crazy by using a more acceptable, a more politically correct term like mentally ill when we don't actually care about the individual context. If we're lumping all the crazy in with crazy, really what we're doing is saying, I'm afraid of this person and I'm justified in my you know, reactionary fear in them because I don't care enough to know about how to react to this person without fear. And I don't want to be educated, I just want them to be taken away. That's how we treat mentally ill now in a human a humanity level not an individual level individuals can break this but when it comes to groups of two or more we end up contradicting our behaviors that we would one-on-one and we need to be aware of this if we're going to improve this i love Nellie bly's story the original human rights activist On a grassroots level, this is the first time it's never happened from a position of authority, but on a grassroots level, the first human rights movement was not about race, was not about sex, but was about the human rights treatment of those that the world in the 1880s were labeling as crazy. You can learn in books like uh, My uh, my Age of Anxiety, an amazing book. You can find that, you know, paperback and in audio format. One of the most profound books that I've um, read on the topic of mental health and anxiety Um And I love how that book concludes in the last chapter, going over the history of anxiety in America in the 1800s. Um, I didn't know this. Everything that I know about anxiety, studying anxiety for decades, I didn't know that in the 1800s, anxiety was known as American anxiety. It was expressly an American thing. And American anxiety was thought and believed to be the root of, you know, the rise of mental illnesses in asylums in America. But, um, now, you know, America is a global state. America touches every part of the world if only, you know, to influence them with democracy and capitalism, you know, which, you know, Americans love, but, So does industrialism. And with the rise of the Industrial Revolution, anxiety is very, very useful. And anxiety became less and less an American thing and more and more a global thing. To now it's not American anxiety, it's just anxiety. And Nellie Bly fought against this in a way where she fought for human rights of the crazy ones. She was... Fighting for the crazy ones long before Steve Jobs came out with that brilliant campaign for the crazy ones who think different. It turns out that the asylums back in the 1800s, especially in the 1880s, when Nellie Bly, you know, (laughs) a poor working class white female, pretty much the bottom of the bottom levels when it came to, you know, being a white person back then, um she was a journalist trying to make it as a journalist in a field dominated by men she was the most profound female journalist she was the first profound female journalist because she took a huge personal risk all risk all or nothing she went all in on protecting people who she thought different than but she saw something going on that was unacceptable so she went in and infiltrated the asylums, a female asylum. And there was no absolute hope that she would ever be able to be removed from these. I love the, the movie Ten Days in a Mad House. You can find this on Amazon Prime. It is an amazing you know, portrayal of what Nellie Bly, the first human rights activist, went through. In order to fight for people who were not her, issue, she did not have skin in the game in any other way but being a fellow human. And this is what it means to be a human rights activist. Human rights activism wasn't invented yet. She invented it not by, you know, speaking out for her people, but for speaking out for humanity in the human treatment the humane treatment of other human beings not because she had something to personally gain not in a way that we could relate to one could say well yeah her career skyrocketed if she had done it for that she would have found a safer way the fact is is she cared more about what was right Than about her own safety. And now safety is defined a lot more nuanced than it was back then. Back then, it was closer to life or death. Now it's, you know, success or marginal success or, you know, security to have, you know, a place to live and food on the table. Um, There are a lot more ways to be safe than there were back then. And even though she was assigned this, She could have said no, she was assigned this because no one else would take it. This was her chance to make it or break it. And she took a huge personal risk without serious hope for personal gain. And she found out more than she ever expected. And she fought harder past getting what she wanted then anyone who gets what they wanted needs to fight. And that's when she went from doing it for the prestige to doing it because it was the right thing. She helped humanity understand that even if you're crazy, even if you're mentally ill, you are not less than human. You should be judged on your choices, not a label. Because she found out the people were be put, being put in these asylums that were funded by, you know, head count. How many people they're treating, how many customers they have is directly correlated to what kind of funding they got. We see this a lot in the insurance agency. We see this a lot, sorry, in the insurance industry. We see this a lot in the You know, the medical investment industry, we see this a lot in the pharmaceutical industry, the same numbers game, but on a much, much bigger scale, in a much, much more legally deniable way. But essentially, it's the same model, just more distributed and more layered. And she found that people who are mentally ill in these insane asylums were actually the ones... That were getting the most help because they were being left alone. The ones who were falsely imprisoned in these asylums for being, you know, speaking out about, you know, some sort of other human rights activists like, you know, the suffrage movement or, you know, racial civil rights or anything. Like, people could be labeled crazy and, you know, their master of the house you know, if they were a servant or, you know, their mistress, they all they have to do is be labeled crazy by either the master or, you know, even the lady of the house could send anyone off to the loony bin at that time just by putting a label on them. As soon as they had that label, they were subhuman and treated, you know, guilty until proven innocent. And the thing is, is some would argue that, you know, it's different now. It's innocent until proven guilty. But it doesn't even matter if, you know, you get a diagnosis and you're, you're treating it. It's, if you are going to a doctor, if you have a diagnosis, that is a label that if you are running a company, that can question your integrity. You, you, if you're running a public company, Your integrity can be questioned. Your, Your mental capacity could be questioned. As far as we've come with the study of psychologic, psychological study for psychology, we've gotten to a point where if people talk about psychology, it's psychobabble. And here's the simple truth. Psychological study was to study what was once considered psychobabble and doesn't exist anymore because now we just call it, you know, the The ranting of the mentally ill or, you know, autistic fits or, you know, being bipolar, whatever it is now. We have our own labels for it because to us, you know, psychology as a human race is just as magical as technology is for people who aren't technologists who aren't engineers it's it's magic it's voodoo it's you know it's taboo it's you know it's not for me sort of bullshit um this is where i get into the prediction part of this podcast because this one has been you know depending on if this is what you want to hear or what you don't want to hear it's been a a rant or it's been, you know, human rights truth. It's depending on your sentiment. So let's neutralize it. How, How do we get from being aware of these human rights atrocities that are affecting every single human rights movement right now on the earth, whether it's you know, a racial human rights movement, whether it's a sexual orientation human rights movement, whether or not it's a gender human rights movement, whether or not, you know, it's a religious human rights movement, whether or not it's, you know, an autistic human rights movement, all of these are connected by this. How do we see this evolution happening? Well, according to logic, I think that, you know, there's way more evidence that we're misunderstanding autism it's the buzzword in the mental health wor- world but what's interesting is it shows no signs of being a mental illness um if the opposite of autism which is neurotypical brain structure you know there's there's an there's an assumption in science that neurotypical is good is normal is you know, beneficial to humanity and autistic is different and is not. And this is, this is not logical. This is very judgmental. It is unscientific. Um, I mean, there's the evidence that autistics are, you know, mentally ill is based on the fact that. They have to have their behavior modified to fit in. Essentially, they have to learn to lie. They have to learn when to bite their tongue. Behavior modification is essentially realizing, you know, don't trust what other people say. Other people are liars. um, Because we measure lying in degrees, it's not an absolute thing. So, you know, we have ways of talking about acceptable lies such as white lies or lies of omission and certain types of lies are okay, you know, if you're protecting, you know, your privacy or your own personal truth when in reality, you know, let's neutralize the word lying and just accept that if you are being dishonest for no matter how you justify it, let's just lump that in with all of lying. So that is neurotypical behavior to measure degrees of what is acceptable and unacceptable dishonesty. Autistic people are inherently honest. In a society that's run by neurotypical people, um, they, they are seen as the defects because they are more honest. And this is really scary if you're not an autistic person because you're thinking, Of all the horrible things that you're hearing about autism, where it might as well be retardation. But honestly, there's probably six major types of autism that we haven't really identified. And, you know, one sixth of them are, you know, labeled retarded. And as time goes on, we find out that less and less of the ones that were lumped in as retards are actually not retards. And we can see this in some amazing motivational speakers where they were accused of being retarded when they were younger, and they just found a different way of being themselves. And we see them as intelligent people. And it's real, <coughs> realizing that the label retard is based on people who have trouble communicating. But what's interesting is, is autistic people absolutely have trouble communicating when it comes to learning how to be dishonest. And this is really tough for neurotypical people to, you know, accept. But when it comes down to it, you know, you're not either born autistic or, you know, not or born neurotypical. What happens is sometime in youth, autistic people have a shift and it manifests And what's really interesting is, is there's a lot of debate right now over whether or not, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is uh, the cause of autism. And if autism is the bad thing because they're different and people hate different people hate people who think different, unless, you know, you're like Nellie Bly or Steve Jobs and see great value in people who think different because conformity is a delusional goal. um, When in reality, better communication and better, you know, human understanding should be the goal. And wanting conformity is actually also not wanting better communication. And this is a contradiction that I've heard justified a million different ways, but it's it's still a logical contradiction, and people say that's just the, world, the way the world is. I get that visionaries don't, um, don't like change as much as visionaries do, and they get really, really afraid of change, but there's a positive change. I mean, if autistic people are more honest, then the logical solution is to help people think more like autistic people. Help everyone think more like autistic people, and the thing is is if it's not a disease, then it can be learned and I think that the people who are often autistic are also really, really good self educators, and this should not be you know under underestimated in its power. Because when do they become good self-educators? If that's a natural ability, they have that since they're born. I know that self-education can be taught, but some people are just genius self-educators. And I find this as a common, common thread in, you know, high-functioning and, you know, if you don't like the word high-functioning autistic, because I don't think that some are high-functioning and some are not. Some just... Um, are more natural, more natural at communicating. So they become high functioning in today's society. But I believe all autistic people have the capability to be high functioning in their own right. And that is something that, you know, material science has a hard time accepting, especially when there's so much money to be made off of dividing people, um, And I think that what we will do is learn to um, pay closer attention to autism, not as a problem, but as a solution. Um, My team at the Library of Alexandria Project, that's library spelled L-B-R-Y, we have been studying ways to reverse engineer uh, autistic behavior modification through cognitive therapy and in application to neurotypical people. Um, I have no history of diagnosis of autism in my life. I've been diagnosed with several mental illnesses in my life. um, And then finally, bipolar disorder stuck. Um, And then this year, I started applying this, you know, communication protocol from reverse engineering, you know, behavior modification for uh, autistic people in application to what if we can think more like autistic people, we'll be more curious, we could be more honest, let's see if I can figure out a protocol for thinking more like an autistic person and since this research I found that it's helped me get to a point with my mental stability that is blown away you know, my doctors in ways that, you know, I no longer need medication. um, I no longer uh, need therapy in ways that, you know, when we address this, I I was unsure whether or not I was, you know, crazy or not. And when I found that I was stable, this was a turning point for me that this worked. And I wanted to make sure that, you know, I wasn't just, you know, autistic and misdiagnosed all along. But the fact of the matter is, is I still have the chemical reactions of bipolar disorder that can affect me. But learning to think like an autist has helped me go beyond self-control to a plane of self-mastery, where I can choose my mood cycles in ways that science is not talking about yet. And I've, you know, worked with others to apply this to people with no history of mental illness. And it has also improved their cognitive ability, their cognitive intelligence, their emotional intelligence, their emotional processing in ways that it results in intense harmony, intense creative capability and intense focus and intense, you know, mood stability in a way that when practiced even by females, the mood stability applies to even during period cycles. And that is probably the most profound thing where it, it works just as effectively and, ha- and neutralizes their moods so that they are stable without extra medication even with, you know, birth control augmenting uh, their mood cycles during a period. And this is something that is, you know, profound. And this is something that has been applying heuristics and psychological method. And I found studying this and sharing this with psychologists and psychiatrists that I'm not alone in these types of discoveries where refocusing attention to things like Anxiety and questioning what we know, and reevaluating what is actually right and wrong in the world, and you know, replacing value nodes that you know have been long thought to be true, and finding that you know, making right wrong and wrong right is providing unbelievable positive results. And this is just the beginning, this is just one scenario of why the future of mental health is going to shift and with more technology means more data and with more data means more alliance of technology and psychology in a way where you know what most consider psychology will will be able to create a baseline with technology in a way that people can help themselves and self-help can actually help people with mental illness in a way that only psychologists have been able to help with until now. And that will be great for the world's, you know, mental health status. Because about one out of five people have a mental illness, but five out of five people need mental health. And this is something that I think is going to be essential, is the marriage of psychology and technology in a way that will really defund the psychology industry and, you know, make it a lot less profitable to be a psychologist as a consultant and really be, you know, a psychologist as a technologist. I think psychologist learning code is going to be the future of, you know, you know, why we don't have human computers anymore and why engineers use computers in a way that we will have psychological engineers rather than psychological consultants. And that's just the way things go in the future. And more people will get help. We'll probably refocus on, you know, anxiety being the root of psychological issues because anxiety is what makes all known mental illnesses worse, Um it also is what clouds our judgment to make bad decisions, whether or not we're mentally ill or not mentally ill, whether or not we're autistic or neurotypical. Anxiety is at the root of people who commit atrocities in the world right now, and the news says with no history of mental illness. Either we were wrong about you know them having a mental illness, or we're wrong about anxiety because even if they have no history of mental illness, I can guarantee they had anxiety. Because I know a lot of people who don't have a mental illness who have overwhelming anxiety that you know clouds their judgment. And this is something that we should not take lightly. Crazy is anxiety. Anxiety is just crazy that hasn't gotten out of hand yet. And we should not underestimate the threat that anxiety, which is a major tool of you know industrial consumerism right now, and we should not underestimate this plague on society. And I think that there will be you know a revolution in our awareness of you know anxiety will not be a neutral thing; it will be a negative thing, and we will have a war on anxiety, um, and it will be a war of debate a war of, you know, human rights movement to fight the real enemy of anxiety for the benefit of human mental health and this will be an alliance between neurotypical minds, you know, mentally non-mentally ill minds, the mentally ill, autistic we will all find a way to unite to fight this real enemy of anxiety Um, this is logically inevitable um, and this will logically lead to rev- revolution and solutions on a quantum level, like quantum is nonlinear, it's everything all at once. And this is, you know, another one of those sciences that's almost like magic, like technology and psychology, um, but it's, it works. And um, I think psychology is a great place to apply quantum theory um, to get it to work for technology and I've talked to many, many psychologists who don't think that it's possible to translate, you know, psychological study to a computer. But what's interesting is, is um, psychology as we know it would be nearly impossible to have a computer do it. But what's interesting is the, the doctors that study autism understand that autistic minds work like a computer and how they balance emotional intelligence and cognitive intelligence in a way that is much, much more efficient than, you know, neurotypical people. And what's interesting is, is, you know, studying how the dynamics of their brain works can be taught. And I think it's only a matter of time before psychological study starts, you know, to see, Autism, not as a threat, but as a tool, not using autistic people as a tool, which has already been used or has already, you know, taken its toll on society, but to actually learn how they think and look at it as a solution, look at it as as a teachable solution to help others come to a more stable place. This is almost inevitable. I mean, I see that the communication protocol that, Library of Alexandria project created for, you know, healthier human communication with oneself and other people is directly applicable to code in a way that, you know, is like the flip side of NLP in computer science. Um, And something that's almost like voodoo in psychology is neuro-linguistic programming. But if it's voodoo, you know, you can't ignore the fact that marketers use this all the time And it works, even if it's, you know, not dualistically, materialistically, scientifically sound, it still works. And figuring out a way to apply this to computer science um, is, you know, essential. Figuring out what's missing from NLP and computer science and what could exist and inspired by logic in neurolinguistic programming applied to technology Could be the other half of NLP and computer science, natural language processing, to figure out how to get us to better understand ourselves rather than better sell other people using the NLP tool in computer science. We could create the same tool in reverse to help us better understand ourselves, how to better ask questions of those we communicate with and those, you know, we... uh, we want to communicate with us by helping us ask better questions of ourselves and that is something computers could be much better at helping us ask heuristic heuristical questions of ourselves and other people quicker and more efficiently than you know going to a doctor afterwards to help us figure out how to you know you know untrain ourselves in these habits and machines can help us as you know a personal assistant along the way. Just somebody has to create this, but the thing is, is I think we're going to have a paradigm shift on what mental health is. I think that the psychology sector needs to be reborn, and I think it will be reborn, uh, despite what you know, you know, I'm afraid of, and what I want with the psychological industry. I'm I'm going against my own fears here because they're not based in logic. They're based in collective reasoning that wants to protect an industry that I love and, you know, realizing that we will be able to figure out an ethical evolution through this if psychologists and technologists are, you know, join in a way that hasn't really happened yet and that's having psychologists that also know code and this is essential. It's also really, really tough because... You know, we need the psychologists that understand philosophy and the philosophical side of the immaterial part of psychology to learn code. And that's that's a tough one because that's really hard to learn code. So we need, you know, either philosophical coders and philosophical psychologists to team up and create better tools to, you know, essentially replace the psychological sector to Combine psychology and technology in a way that will be revolutionary for a more ethical and mentally healthy future for humanity, where I don't see autism being the enemy in 10 years, I see it being the hero in 10 years, where more people choose to learn to think more like an autistic person because it gives them stability, emotional stability. It gives them logical clarity. It makes them better at business. It makes them better in relationships. And this is something that is hard to see now because neurotypical people tend to define relationships by how neurotypical people have relationships. And they see, you know... Autistic people in relationships as being, you know, not ideal. And this is how ideals go from good ideas to bad ideas and how you have an ethical evolution where there's a new, better, good idea. And it's realizing that, you know, talking about crazy in this podcast, we've talked about crazy in many different ways. Just remember that logically, the opposite of crazy is still crazy. And I know how crazy this idea is that doesn't deter from the fact that this is based in logic. It can logically work. We just have to want it. We have to want it more than being afraid that there's nothing better. And we have to go back to the way things were. But also if we go back to the way things were, we would also have to give up certain things like technology and People don't really, they don't take that into account. They want to have their cake and eat it too, rather than do the hard work to bake their own cake so that they can actually, you know, it's like people, you know, they want things to change that they don't own and they don't want to do the work to own things themselves So they want other people to change it who own these things that they're being abused by. And humanity, we just need to grow up. We need to grow up, do the things we don't want to do and do the things we need to do. Creatives need to learn code. You know, the people who say they can't need to learn code need to figure out how to learn code or how to be friends with somebody who can learn code to actually build the things that need to get built. Because we... We need to find a way to not have, you know, the ability to create technology on a base fundamental level locked in the engineer minds because we need more creative minds to innovate through this. And what's, what's funny is is this is almost turned into me trying to compel people to make this prediction happen. But let me be clear this prediction is going to happen. This is one of the long term macro predictions. It's just I see it happening decades down the line unless more people want it. This is inevitably where the world will logically go. I have this hope. I just happen to want to be alive when this change happens. So this is why this is a you know a slightly different prediction podcast where. Um, I'm predicting something that I desperately want to happen before I die. And that's the interesting thing about logic and probabilities is time is a resource. And even though right now I see evidence that this will take decades, potentially even beyond my own death, um, it's not to say that using attention can't hack time to make it happen sooner that's the world we live in where time and attention are resources most people don't understand this unless you're a marketer or unless you're a developer coder like that's what you know code is that's what it is hacking time it is hacking attention that's what Psychology and marketing is it's hacking attention. And if we want to be less afraid of hacking, we need to learn how to hack these languages so that we can understand them on a mass level, or else, you know, we're always going to be afraid of hackers because if we don't know how to hack our own, you know, abilities and our own knowledge to understand these things that are almost like magic, then we're always going to be afraid of hackers. So we need to figure out a new way to educate people. And I think a great place to start is figuring out how to marry technology and psychology because it's eventually going to happen. So I guess the conclusion of this prediction podcast is why not now?